This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is going to be another one of our favorite episodes because we get to talk about all the things we love and there is just so much happening in the world of the sports we love, cycling, athletics, triathlon. Uh, we just want to talk about it all and really look at what can we learn from some of the races happening because some of the best lessons you can take and I know personally for me, some of the best lessons I learn are when I watch professionals race and watch what they do and you pick up on little things and little habits that they do that can have an impact, a really positive impact on your own racing performance. And so we're going to break down what the top athletes are doing, what they're doing well, and maybe some of the mistakes they're making and just talk about our favorite things, Dad. So we love talking about these episodes because we basically get to turn on a mic and, and talk about some of our favorite things. Uh, welcome into the episode and let's start before we get into that with the gratitude. So what are you grateful for? Thanks, Jordan. And uh, you're dead right. July, August um, for the Northern Hemisphere is just the mecca of sport, isn't it? Everything's happening. Um, I could be grateful for that, actually, but I'm not. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely grateful. Um, uh, when you get to watch some of the 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 world's best in any sport, um, one of the ones that I actually enjoy the most is going to the Spring Classics, which we have done for. A, for those who have been on the tour with us uh, many times, um, and we haven't done it since COVID started, which is, you know, we haven't been there since we missed 2019, 20, and 21, so, and 22, actually. So we're actually uh, going back to Belgium. Um, so the preparation started for that for um, Paris-Roubaix and Tour of Flanders are the two events we, we love to take people to, and I'm so excited and grateful to be able to get that preparation going again and um, look forward to uh, yeah, we've got a full a full contingent of people already who <laughs> who've signed up so it's absolutely fantastic can't wait to uh, to go down the, the track of uh, the exciting bit of getting it all organized and uh, getting there so I'm grateful for for that to be opened up again yeah I tell you what uh, you got butterflies in the stomach when we started looking at accommodation and looking back at the area again and you just get taken straight back into that world and it's just so exciting so that's a great one and very excited for that to happen and it's funny, I've been talking to a few of the people who are coming on board and just saying, you know, oh, when you see it on telly and uh, the Tour of Flanders comes on and all the people we've taken on the, on those tours, they instantly text me when we're watching the event. Oh, remember we stood there and we, we rode that hill and it's it's you're reliving the memories of, of roads and, and uh, those unbelievably hard cobbled hills, the Paderberg, Coppenberg and Quaramont, just to name a few where the guys really struggled on them and, and they bring back so many good memories. And um, it's exciting to rekindle. We might not have spoken to those people for a year and yet it's our common um, link now. It's fantastic. You actually appreciate the the race so much more because you know all the roads. And so when they're on a section, you know how hard that section is because you've done it. And then when you see someone attack on a certain section, you go far out. I was just hanging on in that. I was just trying to get up the hill and someone's actually launching an attack. And there's actually one part, if you know the Tour of Flanders, if you're listening, you know the Tour of Flanders race. They got the Quaramont three times. It's one of the most famous cobbled hills. And um, actually, when they go, when you come out of the Quaramont, you turn left back onto the main road and it goes down for maybe it's so short 50 meters and then it goes straight up this long steep drag hill and uh, a lot of people don't realize when you're watching the race on tv that is such a crucial part of the race all the time because they are on their limit to the top of the quaramont and then they get a 10 second rest for, on their legs and your legs are absolutely gassed and then you've got to go up this hill again and then whoever can back up that effort after that 10 second um, break 
you know, usually does really well in the race. And so that's just a small part where you, um, you absolutely love it. I wonder if, you know, it's worth those guys that want to win training that way and doing a three-minute VO2 max effort, having 10 seconds rest, and then trying to do another 30-second effort after that, something like that. Yeah, it's uh, spot on, Jordan. Funny you should say that because it was a five-minute effort for us and <laughs> and and a 40-second rest. Um, so, you know, depending on your skill level. But there's been so many attacks on that. You're right. How the hell – I'm – but barely hanging on yet these people thinking i'm gonna attack here um you know um sargon when he got uh, hit by the spectators jumper and dragged under the ground um you know tom boone an attack there and cancellara attack there and um there's such an iconic place to to attack the peloton and because they go up at three times people are just had it by the time they get to the third time mm. yeah so we could talk about this all day but that's, that's my gratitude <laughs> yeah yeah good one mine is uh for actually a supplement and this is not a sponsored gratitude but uh if you listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of podcasts around the world, especially sporting ones, are sponsored by Athletic Greens. And I thought I'd try them out and I've been trialing them for about six months. And it's basically this supplement where it's supposed to give you as many vitamins and minerals uh, in one little kind of supplement drink in the morning. It's just a little uh, bit of scoop of powder that goes in 200 mils of water. And I don't know if it's like pure placebo, but um, I just find it absolutely amazing. I feel like you've had a coffee or something at the start of your day. And even if it is 100% placebo, I don't care because um, I absolutely love it. And I really notice the difference of the days that I don't have it. So um, not a sponsored plug, but uh, Athletic Greens are doing a good job. And even if it's just their marketing, so be it. I, uh, I really enjoy Athletic Greens for anyone that, out there that wants to try it. Well, you're giving them a free plug. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, and had nothing in return because you paid for, paid That's for so it. That's so true. I might um, email them and say, "Actually, we, we mentioned you on our podcast." So, um, anyway, getting into the wide world of sports. So, uh, let's start with the Tour de France, uh, men's and women's. Um, we last time we spoke, the men's had a few days left, and uh, we weren't sure if you know the Pog was going to be able to break uh, Vinegard, and turns out he didn't. Um, what are your thoughts on the end of the tour? Anything stand out for you? Any performances worth talking about in the last kind of few stages? Yeah, I, there's so much to talk about there. I don't even know where to start. But when we last gave our predictions, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, we gave Ineos a bit of a, a bit of a big of a big rap and one they probably didn't deserve. In hindsight, now um, they didn't they didn't really have the the look. What we said was that the Pog and Vinegar were, were far and above better than everybody else, and to Geraint Thomas's credit, he absolutely did a great job um, in, in securing third place, but that's as good as Ineos could do. It would be different with uh, Bernal there, I imagine. Um, he would be matching um, the other two young guns, um, and that would be a different race. Uh, Ineos did a really good job, but uh, they just weren't up to it, and neither was um, the rest of the field, really. Um, so it really played out to be you know, a competition between two people and uh, Vinegar was just outstanding and and no matter what the Pog threw at him, um, he defended brilliantly um, and he was actually the better rider and rode away and uh, I don't know if we talked about the stage where Van Aert was, uh, was just the instrumental difference uh, riding Pogacar off his wheel and allowing Vinegar to take off. I think that was the next stage after the last podcast that we did that was the stage of the of the decade for me. Um, is there anything Wow can't do? Um, wow, Van Art. It, it, it was incredible. And I saw some footage afterwards where he swung up, and you know, as as the the help, helpers to the yellow jersey often do, they can barely pedal because they've given their all in that period of half an hour or ten minutes or four minutes 
and and Van Aert had been up the road in the break and he'd, <laughs> he'd done everything all day and then he he dropped back to to time trial Pogacar off his wheel which was incredible and then swung up gave himself 10 15 seconds rest turned around saw the pog was coming back got back on the back of Pogacar's wheel and followed him the whole way to the top I just found that was well it's almost too hard to believe but um but boy uh that just they just exerted their dominance there and then on that stage and there was nothing more really that that uh Pogacar's team could do about it um and look the time trial was his last go to have uh, a chance at winning another stage and well well Van Aert came out and beat them all um and I think that um Vinegar could have matched Van Aert's time within a second or two but out of respect I reckon and winning the event I think he eased up in that last two or three hundred meters and and I'm not saying he gifted it to Van Aert, but I think out of respect, you know, he, he probably ne- he would have. I reckon he would have missed out by a second or two in winning the stage. But it, it wasn't what his goal was. His goal was to to win the yellow jersey, and it was great and just justice that Van Aert won the time trial. Um, um, so I just thought it was an unbelievably spectacular last period of, and then obviously Champs Elysees. Um, that was interesting. I thought that uh, Jumbo Visma were going to go for it and, and try and get Van Aert to win the, mm. the stage again, but I was I was absolutely wrong. They were so happy with what they'd done. Yeah. They didn't want to have a bar of it, really. They yeah, just yeah. they stepped away from it, and, and I was only frustrated because I was tipping them in my in the Tour de France <laughs> tipping competition. <laughs> I tipped the wrong people, yeah, but I was yeah. really hoping Caleb would come through and uh, and just get something out of the tour. Frustrating. Oh, so yeah. frustrated for him. Um, <laughs> to go through all that I pain think, in the mountains. <laughs> I know, and then not even not even um, fire a shot because yeah. he got boxed in and was in a bad position. And when when things are not going your way, boy, they're not going your way. And mm. he just picked the wrong line. And and you know, and when you're confident and things are going well, it's amazing how gaps open for you. And it's just the way the rub of the green, isn't it? It's so you take that, the good with the bad and. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this with uh, Van Aert because a lot of people have been saying he can win a GC. You know, he's just shown how good he is. He can. He's making it up here with Pogacar, and um, I th- there has to be something said about the fact that he's on overall. He was thirty, forty, fifty minutes behind or whatever because he would he would give his all on a stage and then drop off and be twenty minutes back. And there has to be something said about the fact that the GC riders can't have any days like that. They don't get any rest. And while it's unbelievable what Van Aert's doing, he can do it because he has days where he, he does those efforts and then and then backs off. And it's a totally different race for him to be at the front all day, every day, and not lose that 30 or 40 minutes. And also mentally, I think that helps you because the top guys, Pogacar and Vinegard, there's so much pressure each day to not get dropped. Whereas if you know that it doesn't matter you get dropped, there must be some sort of mental edge there where you just go, I'll just sit on and hang on for as long as I can. And if I get dropped, that's fine. Uh, what do you think about that mental edge and how can we use that in our own racing? Because um, it's just perceived pressure where um, if Van Aert was in the same position behind Pogacar and he was contending for GC, maybe he would start mentally going, this is too tough. I'm, I'm going to drop off. Um, this is too hard. Whereas when you when it doesn't matter, it's almost like the pressure's off. I totally agree, and I don't think that – like there's been plenty of commentary about he could do that, and and so Bradley Wiggins absolutely did that. He was an example of someone who completely changed from a one-day classics rider, and I, I loved the interview he did with um, 
I think it was with the move. Um, and they were talking about his career and uh, he had to completely change his whole training regime, lose half his body weight, um, become an absolute um, engine threshold rider um, and just completely changed the way he rode his bike. And and so the first thing I would say is I love the way Van Aert rides his bike and races and, and takes risks. If he became that type of GC rider, I, I don't think cycling would be better for it. Um, I think I think we would be losing – like I love watching Remco Evenepoel do what he does. I love watching Philippe. I love watching Sagan. They're entertainers. They, they make the race, you know. Sure, I love the GC riders in tours. They're a different rider. They're having to show their sustainability over three weeks, and that's a completely different event. Um, so I think they're both both styles of racing are really important to cycling, and that's what people love about it. Because in the Tour and the Giro and the Welter, there's there's about five races happening: the Poker Jot, the Green, the Young Rider, the Yellow Jersey. You know, the time trial specialists, the hill climbers, the sprinters. There's just something for everybody. And, you know, I just don't – I just – yeah, sure, well, Van Aert could do that, but I just think he's better off sticking with, with where he's good. And and I think uh, that enables him and a Vanderpol to do what they do or an Alaphilippe or, you know, they can make an, uh, the sport exciting because of their ability to not have that pressure of having sustained – you're going to make different decisions when you're in the middle of a bunch on day four as a GC rider than you are as a, a, a Rullier who's going to get a, a chance to win a stage somewhere. You know, that the GC rider has to worry about keeping his nutrition up every single second of the day because he needs it to be performing. He can't have a bad day. He just can't have an off day. He's got to stay with the main bunch within sight of the breakaway or whatever's happening so that he doesn't lose any time. And and, and he can't push too hard because it could burn matches and and he's got to avoid crashes and not lose time. And there's just so many that's, – that's so many things that he has to worry about other than I'm just going to have a free crack at this today. They don't get that opportunity. And look, I thought Pogacar was becoming one of those riders in the tour because he was almost – giving away that, oh, I don't care about, you know, the GC. I can still do this. I do care about the GC, but I can still have fun winning stages. And and as we talked about, that caught up with him um, and probably cost him the tour with those burning matches um, that where he shouldn't. And had he had a different director sport, if I don't reckon uh, Valen Piper had still been involved, I don't reckon that would have happened. Um, so it's a complex question that you've asked me, but I think uh, I I think yes, the freedom to do things uh, and recover um, is a completely different style of bike riding than being a GC rider. And I think that uh, Van Aert needs to stay where he is in the in the genre that he's selected is he's so he's so good for the sport. And I think it'd be and even Brad Wiggins said it was like, I had to become a boring rider to win the tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, and look, to to be fair to Vinegard, he was not a boring threshold rider like Wiggins was when he won it and Froome was when they, he, they won it four years in a row. And that's not to take anything away from them. Boring's a harsh term, but they were just they just rode the consistent numbers uh, and won the tour that way, whereas Vinegard was so exciting. The Vinegard versus uh, Pogacar show this year was unbelievable. And to be honest, uh, it was absolutely the most exciting Tour de France I've ever seen in my life. And it just had unbelievable stages and cycling itself is in such an incredible position i think because of all those reasons you just listed all these uh really amazing exciting cyclists are coming in and just taking on races and taking 
chances and riding aggressively and it's just so much fun to watch and um i said this to you that i i found myself on youtube a uh a lance armstrong climbing up outdoors video came up and got recommended to me and um i had to click it it was it was a guilty pleasure i know i shouldn't i shouldn't enjoy it because of what what he is and what he was but um you know watching some of his classic rides up um outdoors and um for me looking at the crowd in that clip uh, it was an amazing crowd up Altuez, but it was nothing compared to the crowd up Altuez this year. And I think I feel like cycling is just getting bigger and bigger, especially over in Europe. And um, the crowds are just astronomical, and the crowds in this Tour de France were just ridiculous. And it's because they're putting on such an exciting show. So um, yeah, no one can fault those Van Aert, Pogacar, or um, Vinegard who were always on the front uh, from having fun in the Tour de France. And you saw even on the last stage. Um, they did Van Aert and Pogacar did a little attack against the peloton almost as a joke and they sat up laughing and look even though Pogacar might have kind of ruined his Tour de France a little bit from burning too many matches he absolutely had a lot of fun and I actually wasn't sure in in that first stage where he got dropped for the first time uh, really badly he was kind of showboating to the camera a little bit in the valley and I wasn't sure if that was showboating or arrogance and I think on reflection I think it was just indi- an indicator of his personality that he just loves cycling he loves attacking he loves having fun he wasn't saying I'm too good for this. He was just saying, this is intense and I love it, or this is pretty crazy and I love it. Um, and he showed that so much more throughout the rest of the Tour de France. So I think he's living his best life. He just loves cycling. He lost the Tour this year, but uh, if all these cyclists keep going, it's just going to be so exciting to keep watching for a long time. Yeah, there's so many youngsters are coming through who have got that uh, no fear, no fear factor. And, you know, watching Pidcock descend, that was exciting, you know. And look, I know there's been some, there's been some great descenders over the year, Nibali, and you know, there's been really good, good descenders. And look, Chris Froome was able to keep up with him, and he's an older generation rider, and that shows you the quality of Chris Froome's bike handling skills. But, but that was exciting, wasn't it? Watching them descending, and that's you know, and look, most of the people. Um, now who follow the tour have got the advantage of social media. Back in the 90s, there was no such things as phones or YouTube or um, clips that you could see. Um, you were, we were lucky to get, you know, some footage of the race, for, you know, on the news or something like that. And now we're getting these incredible helicopter views and people are getting an insight into the race. Yeah, and so so obviously the crowds are dictated by the publicity or the promotion. So I think you know what you're saying is dead right. The crowds are way bigger now, but there's there's reasons. The racing was always exciting then as well, and I can remember watching Contador and um, you know Cadell and and the Slicks and just giving it to each other the same way. So every generation's got those riders. Um, you know, even uh, Ulrich and Lance and fucking name you know um, Pantani you know d- d- despite the, their drugs they were still racing they're all cheating and they're all still racing at that high level and attacking and it still came down to tactics and um, it's just, you know it's just been generational and, and now we've got a new crop and they're just as exciting um, and you know we thought Sargon was never gonna you know stop winning and all of a sudden now he's kind of getting to the end of his career and and the new generation's taken over so it's in a group it's good a good healthy state but the one thing I don't think's healthy about it is I heard Johan Berniel say that the the prize money for each stage and uh, KOMs on each sprint stage or they're getting like a thousand euro, you know, and at the end of the day, if you win the, 
if you win the stage, you get, I don't know what it was, some really small amount of money to win the stage. And and the riders don't seem to have much say. It seems to be dominated by the the UCI or whoever's running running the show. So I feel that there could be, there could be a bit of a revolution coming here from the cyclists. You know, you, you look at the, the, the elite tennis players or the elite golfers, you know, the cyclists aren't getting the same money. Uh, look at the, you know, professional soccer, professional football, professional basketball. Well, cycling, because you don't have entry fees to a stadium, I think that could be the difference. Um, for a Grand Tour, it's all free to watch. Um, I don't know. It's a whole different can of worms there, but I'm kind of – the sport's in a great position with the riders, but I don't think the riders are getting remunerated as they should be. Something else that's really exciting was the first edition of the Tour de France Femmes, so the Women's Tour de France, and that was also unbelievable. And the coverage was just as great, and the crowds were just as good, um, and it was actually so exciting to watch. It was uh, every stage had something crazy drama in it. There was so much happening, um, a lot to talk about, and we posted a few uh, videos on our Instagram of some of the highlights we liked. Um, but I think the one standout performance was the winner who just came through in the last few mountain stages, Annemiek van Vluten, basically just rode solo victories um, and dominated the peloton, and uh, it was pretty unbelievable to watch. I really enjoyed watching uh, the Femme Tour de France. Um, it was exciting racing. Um, everybody was having a crack, and you know why? I think the shorter stages really helps that, and I reckon that, the male races could take a little bit of a leaf out of that. You don't need to ride six, seven hours. Yeah, Mariana Voss definitely was the smart rider and was only beaten by Anna Mick Van Vluten because she was the, the best rider. Yeah, Mariana Voss certainly dominated the sprinting. Um, and then it was, was good to see that even though Van Vluten is just head and shoulders above everyone, uh, Demi Vollering, who was second place, actually did so well to hold her own and basically rode solo a lot <laughs> in second place. And she was just kind of one, two or three minutes behind Van Vluten the whole time and um, shows a really good performance. She just couldn't hang on to her throughout the whole stage. Um, Van Vluten really had to work for it because she got a gap but then didn't keep extending. You know, normally once someone pops, that's it. They might lose. We saw with Pogacar, once he popped, um, if the stage kept going, he was going to lose three, four, five, six minutes. Um, whereas Rolling kind of lost a minute and then she was just able to hold that and she ended up losing the whole tour by only a few minutes. So um, that was that was really yeah, good to see. Yeah, that's spot on. It was – yeah, I totally agree. And um, the Van Vluten's attacks, they were the difference. You, she'd get gaps and then they'd stay the same. Um, and she did that quite a bit. Um, and Vollering was – probably matching her on most of the climbs but couldn't go with her accelerations and you know that's a good sign for Vollering she can work on that and and she'll be a match for Van Vluten I imagine in the near future. Our favorite moment of the tour when we put this video on our Instagram was when uh, Ludwig um, the Swiss national champion won her stage and um, her interview after is what we put up because she was so emotional and actually gives you goosebumps where they had a really bad they had some riders crash the day before they had a really bad 24 hours and she just spoke about the teamwork and how they all just kept going no matter what they pushed through Uh, she was actually dropped you know I think like 15 or 20 K out and then got back on. Um, she crashed. She crashed in as that well. stage. Like, I don't know what was or the day before. Yep. Yeah. Um, that, that's the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then she ends up winning and uh, the interview is just absolutely amazing. It's what cycling is all about. And a lot of the comments on the video that we put up just said the same thing, you know, goosebumps watching that. And um, that was just awesome. It's what you always talk about. You never know what's going to happen. It's, and honestly, we spoke about that in week one of the, the men's tour de France where Pogacar just looked unbeatable. You know, they just didn't look, look like they could break him. And, 
it's too arrogant to say, you know, it's 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 over because it's just never over and anything can happen and we just we just see these examples over and over again in world sport and it's it should be the same for all of us in in our races. You know, you could be having a bad day but you could turn it around. Yeah, but you don't know if this person's not going to, you know, I'm not going to turn up to this race because I can't win because that person's there. Well, that person could have a puncture or a mechanical or have a bad day or actually not turn up and you don't go there. You can't have that approach to anything, you know. If you're going to have that approach, you might as well, you know, quit the sport. Yeah. Moving on to uh, the Commonwealth Games is on right now. And for those who aren't of a Commonwealth nation, uh, the Commonwealth Games is basically the Olympic Games, but for only the Commonwealth nations. Um, And it's really exciting to watch. And uh, in the triathlon scene, there was a great battle between New Zealand's Hayden Wild and England's Alex Yee. And they've had some great battles over the last 12 months. Um, But Wild had a 15 to 20 second lead on him going into the run and it was a sprint distance. So... um, 15 to 20 seconds is a lot over 5K, but Yee is a superstar runner. And Yee caught him with a K to go, which was an incredible effort. Um, and they were coming into the sprint finish. And uh, instead of sprinting, Hayden Wild shook his hand and said, you go, because uh, Wild had to serve a 10-second penalty uh, just before the finishing straight. And so Yee got the gold medal. Wild had to settle for second. And he only just got there. Um, Australia's Matt Hauser um, was coming through and finished only five seconds behind. Uh, well, after he served his penalty, but it was interesting because the penalty was very harsh for what it was. There's a bit of controversy about it. Um, I, again, we put up a video asking people what they thought, um, and that video ended up getting millions of views because there was a lot of arguments happening about whether it was a penalty or not. Basically, he started unclipping his helmet just as he was racking his bike, and the rules are you can't unclip until the bike's fully racked. A lot of people saying that just because his hands were at the clip doesn't mean he was unclipping at the time. It was like a matter of millimeters, so should you lose a chance at a gold medal, Based on that, other people are saying, you know, rules are rules, um, don't do it. Um, but it was sad not to be able to see a sprint finish because it would have been great between them. Ye had just done a massive effort to catch Wild. Could he have out-sprinted him still? Um, but we didn't get to see it, and that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah, there's a lot to, to talk about from what you've just said because um, it was a really great uh, spectacle for triathlon. And um, unfortunately, once again, I'm – I don't want to bag officialdom because without them, we don't have events. Um, and 99% of the volunteers around the world who, who turn up every Saturday at the local clubs do a fantastic job and love having and, and we need them. But sometimes officialdom just goes too far and they actually ruined the race um, um, by a technicality that I can't – I've watched the video so many times, I can't even see whether the thing's unclipped or not. The fact that you've got your hand on your helmet is just probably good preparation, but maybe that now the lesson is don't put your hand near your helmet. Um, but did it make a difference to the end of the race? It sure didn't. Um, and so that's the spirit of the rules. If you're getting an unfair advantage, then sure, people need to be penalised. There are rules for that reason. But, you know, it, it was literally, you know, a, a minute second. If it, I can't even prove that it did happen. Um, yet they they penalised him 10 seconds and they spoiled the finish of the race by instead of having a sprint finish to see who's the best they had. Um, I was I didn't understand that why he was he was saying you go for it until later when when it made sense. But I was yelling at the telly going, "What you're giving up? What are you doing? Why aren't you sprinting?" Um, but it was kind of a really weird scenario because I watched the race live and I I had no idea that, that was going to happen. Um, 
and it spoiled it totally. Um, I think, I li- but anyway, I like that. That's... Yeah, I like that expression of it's against the spirit of the rules because rules are there for a reason, and people are asking, you know, what? Why is that rule there? And uh, I think, like originally, it's a safety thing. You know, it has to be a certain time point in time where people can't unclip their helmet because they want to make sure that um, people have their helmets on whenever they're near their bike or on their bike. Um, and they have to pick a point somewhere, whether it's a meter before the transition line, and they've just chosen that you can't touch your helmet until your bike's fully racked, and that's where they've decided to make the rule. And I, I assume it's first and foremost a safety thing, and then they have to pick somewhere because, yeah, there has to be a, a line so they can say that's illegal or not legal. Um, but like you said, what he did didn't give him an unfair advantage. You wouldn't say it was a safety issue, um, and it's probably, if you looked at the spirit of the rule, um, it was probably unnecessary. But that said, in the women's triathlon, uh, there was a great battle in first and second between Georgia Taylor-Brown and Flora Duffy, the Olympic champion. Um, and I was really keen to see how this one played out because Georgia Taylor-Brown probably would have challenged Flora Duffy for the gold medal at the Olympics, but um, she had some sort of mechanical with her bike, and so she ended up losing a lot of time and just couldn't even compete on the run. And so they got off the bike together, and Duffy's transition was marginally faster than Georgia Taylor-Brown, who was a really good transitioner because if you see her in the um, in the, the super, tri- super League triathlons where transition is everything, she's always out first. Um but Flora Duffy, and this is this shows the importance of transitions. Um, beat her. I'm I'm not sure why how long she was, she was just fractionally quicker in everything she did in transition. They came in together. She came out 15 to 20 meters ahead. And again, in a 5k sprint, um, that's just that's just game over. You know, it's so hard to close out a 15 to 20 meter gap in running. Um, so when you look at the Yi and Wild thing, every millimeter counts. Every millimeter or every millisecond counts uh in that transition area and flora duffy showed it and look she ran away from um taylor brown quite easily but it would have been interesting if taylor brown at least came out of transition with her and could hold on to her for the first k or um yeah my that's my thoughts on the transition thing it's it's it does make a big difference and so every second counts well of course we have false starts in running and swimming and it used to be an absolute pain in the neck when the 100 metres would take four hours to go through the heats because every race had a break. And they fixed it by saying, if you break, you're out. So in the old days, you get a warning and then a second warning and then you're out. Um, so the event took twice as long as it should. And so, you know, they fixed it by saying, you know, that's it, you're out, one break and you're out. And that sounds harsh, but you can gain, you know, 0.1 of a second advantage, which will be the difference in you qualifying to the final or or winning the race. So, yes, you have to have rules. And, and I, I'm not saying that the rule for triathlon is wrong. I'm just saying it was unclear whether he got an yeah. advantage from unclipping yeah. his helmet. Um, so I think the rule for having your helmet on until the bike's racked is absolutely right. That is the rule, and it should be enforced. But it's got to be enforced. But clearly, the guy's unclipped, and the straps are hanging down, um, and he's got his helmet off before he's racked his bike. Would be more an infringement because that's getting five second advantage ahead of everybody else. Who, so yes, um, you know, the transition is part of the event, um, just like starting in running is part of the event, and swimming on the blocks is part of the event. And that's the thing you have to get right. You have to have good reaction time. Um, and you have to be good in transition, and many events have been lost in transition. You know, equal equal athletes have swim, ride, and run, and they've lost it in transition. And so you, you need to practice all those things. So, so yeah, it, it's it's kind of uh, all part of the 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 story, isn't it? That if if you don't, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm the best runner, I'm the best rider, I'm the best swimmer, but I lost because I'm the worst transition person. 
will get better at transition. Um, so, you know, so you can win the race if that's the difference. We absolutely see it at age group level um, where people miss out on a podium at, at age group um, races, triathlons by five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And we've spoken about this where um, that, that that was lost in transition, T1 and T2. You know, you, you people are quite relaxed in T1 and T2 at, at um, you know, age group kind of races and non-pro races, uh, but they could be gaining so much more time um, by getting that right and making that as efficient as possible. Yeah, and the thing is to not make it intense. I'm I'm a big believer in getting efficiency over intensity. So if you get out of the water, I don't want you sprinting to get your heart rate up 30 beats between the water and the transition. I want you to be efficiently getting to transition. I want you to efficiently take your helmet off, put your shoes on or whatever method you're using, but not spiking your heart rate. And, and so, you know, it's efficiency, as you said, rather than intensity. Yeah. I had my own example a few months ago where I, disastrously, I just couldn't get my shoes on in transition. And then I went away after that and practiced it in a whole bunch of training sessions. And the same thing kept happening. I would, I'd run to my shoes, try and get them on as fast as possible. Um, and I was saying to myself, relax, but my body wasn't doing it. I was being intense, as you said, and it, I just couldn't get them on. And then I finally changed it to, like you're saying, efficiency and just just relax that little bit more. So sacrifice half a second of what you think you could get them on in. Um, and suddenly the shoes started coming on straight away and I was having no problems. So it's almost like slowing down a fraction of a second gains you more time in the long run. Whereas rushing through that process, where you think you're going to gain that an extra half a second there, um, you end up losing. So yeah, it's an interesting one. And you know that, you know, on a time trial course where there's lots of cornering and, and U-turns, you know, that can be the difference in the race. You could all be riding the same, but you're slower in the corners. So you're going to go practice U-turns. That's the difference between yeah. – that's right. There's so many facets. Downhill riding, um, you know, you're quite quite nervous about downhill riding, whereas someone's really skilled at it. Um, we, example I can give you is our bunch ride um, last weekend – I got left by the whole everybody who was just riding so much better than I am at the moment, which is fantastic. And and I caught back up coach, to the bunch it? because <laughs> it is, but I caught back up because of my descending yeah, skills yeah. for them to just drop me again on the next hill. <laughs> but but my descending skills were really helpful on the day. Yeah. Um, and I think guys are shaking their heads, going, "How did you get back?" And it's you know. It's because I'm good at descending. Yeah, for sure. Moving on to probably, I don't know, it's my favorite sport at the moment, and I think it's yours as well. We've both got such a love for it, and that's the World Athletics Championships. The World Championships of Athletics were on in uh, Eugene, Oregon last week, uh, and it was unbelievable. It was um, just such an amazing world champs across all events, and I generally tend to watch... um, more than middle distance events, um, maybe go down to a 400. I don't, I don't tend to – I see the results of the sprinting, but I'm not fully into it. Whereas this World Champs, I was watching every race because there was so much stuff happening and there's so much for us to talk about, about what unfolded. Um, first thing I want to mention is the under-20 World Champs are on right now and the guy who is touted as the next Usain Bolt uh, just broke the under-20 world record, ran 9.91 seconds for the 100. That's Sealy Topogo. It is an unbelievable footage of the race, and he looks like Usain Bolt because he's five metres clear of the rest of the pack, and 30 metres out from the end, he starts waving his finger at the rest of the <laughs> race, um, letting him know that he's way out in front, and still runs a 9.91. So it was very Bolt-like, and it's pretty pretty fun and interesting to watch. Uh, isn't it, uh, as we talked about in cycling, um, you think there'll never be another Usain Bolt? Um, you know, 
Carl Lewis was the same in the 80s and 90s, Jesse Owen. You can just keep going back, but every generation will produce another Usain Bolt or, um, you know, it's just another guy who's come out of the woodwork who's just as talented and, boy, it's going to be interesting to see how how good this guy can be because that's an incredible time for a guy who was showboating in the last 10 metres. And then Um, I can't wait to see... uh, what he could do. Well, actually, in the last 24 hours, so in the 200-meter heat, he broke the under-20 world record and ran a 19.98, and he really he, he kept his foot down in that. He didn't. He wasn't showboating in an unbelievable time, uh, and then he, he got done in the final in a photo finish, uh, and the guy that beat, they both ran 19.96, so they both broke the under-20 world record, or championship record, sorry, again, um, not the world record, but... He was under pressure and he got done. And so, yeah, a lot of showboating throughout the week. And, um, yeah, the medal's not always yours, even though he looked that much better <laughs> than than the, the rest of the field. That's a, that's a great story. Uh, uh, and, look, you know, it, the fact that it was in Oregon, the, you know, the home of running, I think it, it, it's everything to be excited about. it. And your his, history of running is better than mine. But, uh, you know, just explain what, what this means to be running there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um it is it is such a home of running, and you could tell that when you're watching the World Champs uh, because of the crowd. The crowd was just awesome. Was, they've rebuilt this stadium, um, but basically Oregon is uh, the home of Steve Prefontaine, uh, and he was electric for athletics, and he was obviously before my time. I've just read about him, but um, you look at the crowds that would go to watch him, and he would pack out stadiums because everyone wanted to see him, watch him run, and he ran pretty funny. Uh, I don't know if, if you ever watched many races of him, but he would just run as hard as he could from the front, basically, and try and run the legs off everyone. Um, but if you've ever read the Nike book, I actually don't know what it's called. I don't know if it's called Just Do It or something, but about the story and the foundation of Nike. Nike was founded in Oregon, and Oregon is just a running city. It's a running town. They're running fanatics. Everyone there runs, um, and that's where Nike actually started. Um, and so they've just got such a strong running history and running culture, and to have the world champs there after a few years off with COVID, um, it was just unreal. And the crowd throughout a lot of the events – uh, the crowd noise was just amazing, and um, yeah, I guess we want to go through to finish off some of the some of the events that stood out. I think uh, the fifteen hundred always one of the keystone events of any athletic championships, and Ingebrigtsen got beaten, which was a massive shock. Whoa, who saw that coming? And uh, watching his heats, where he's running up the front straight, um, running three or four lanes wide. For those who didn't see it, in the heats with both arms waving to the crowd, telling them to roar more, to cheer more. I just thought, what are you doing? You are an incredible athlete. Just run. Stop trying to be um, the crowd organizer. You know, your job is to run. Um, I think think you're getting a confusion happening here and you're going to have a cropper soon. And funnily enough, two days later, he loses the 1500. Um, To me, it was almost like, you know, you're concentrating on the wrong stuff. Um, your mind is somewhere else. Are you that arrogant that that you, you, you know, you, I know you're an entertainer, but you're a runner first. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's good for the sport, and, no doubt. And I, but... Yes, but I don't think it was good for him. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, uh, he he got done by Jake White, Whiteman, um, and that's a great story in itself. Um, it gives a description of what you think about that run. Yeah, I think we spoke about the boldness of his move with 200 metres to go, won him that race. And Ingebrigtsen does his normal thing. He eventually gets himself to the front and just gets himself on the inside of lane one and runs a pace where it is really hard for anyone to come around him. 
once they come to the last home straight, Ingebrigtsen's always in a good position and runners have to sprint round him to beat him and he's already going such a good pace. He's got such a good kick that it's almost impossible. And Whiteman put in a huge effort between 150 and 200 metres to go, got half a shoulder in front of uh, Ingebrigtsen and then just cut him off and just went straight into lane one and and chopped his stride um, and got himself in the best position and Ingebrigtsen couldn't come around him. Um, and it was unbelievable. And what was also unbelievable was his dad was commentating and there's great footage and we'll actually put this up on our Instagram as well, but there's great footage of his dad commentating the race um, and then watches his son win and he just is he's left speechless mid-commentary. He just It's so fun to watch because he just can't believe he just watched his son win a world championship. Uh, it was a brilliant race and, uh, you know, you've got to try something new and this guy had, I think he came ninth at the Olympics in the 1500. Um and he was in good form, he thought, but uh, didn't get the result he wanted in Tokyo. And you have to try something different. And what a bold move. Inga Britson's style is always running the legs off the other people. And if you come around the straight and you're a metre behind a guy, you've got to run faster speed to get in front of him. It's no different to a bike race, you know. Why give someone four bike lengths with a tailwind, when you're basically going to ride 65 k's an hour each, you've got to ride 67 k's an hour to get in front of the guy, but you're giving him four bike length start. You know, this is the same as in running. So Whiteman did the right thing. He basically cut him off and 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 threw his rhythm out, and then Ingrid Britson didn't have the legs to come back around him. It was a brilliant tactic. And you say, you know, why give the world champion the best runner in the world, and he is the best runner in the world, why give him the advantage? Why give him a head start? You know, and Wyman didn't. He said, no, I want this advantage, and Ingrid Britson has to come around me, and it, it really worked. So, and look, to Ingrid Britson's credit. Be interesting, um, George, so I was going to say, it'd be interesting to see if other runners now use that tactic. Yeah. and you know, there's this there's this big thing down the back straight where they're running absolutely flat out so that no one passes you. Mm. Well, what are you going to have to sprint to, <laughs> yeah. in the back straight? You're going to have to do two sprints yeah. to get the lead. Yeah, exactly. Um, very interesting. Yeah. Um, and to Ingebrigtsen's credit, he he finished the race and he said, "I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed with silver at the World Champs, which um, he's ne- he'd never won a world title at this stage." And um, to say that shows he really thought he should win it. Uh, so I don't know if he was embarrassed because of his antics or just because of the race itself. But he came out and dominated the 5,000 and just ran the legs off the guys in the 5,000 race. Um, but once again, used that tactic of he was getting the crowd involved up down the back straight. He was running three or four lanes wide again and amping the crowd up on lap six and lap eight. Um, and I thought, gee, you better win this if, if you're going to do it again. And I, I loved it because... <laughs> The crowd noise in that race was unbelievable. The commentators could not stop talking about it. They were saying it's hard to hear on the TV, but they just said this is thunderous. The whole crowd is just on their feet watching this 5,000-meter race. It was such a great race. Um, and I think Ingebrigtsen was just lapping it up and, um, yeah, he's waving his arms to the crowd and then, yeah, and won his first world title, which was awesome. And then, interestingly, again, it was very hot there and they had water on the side for the 5,000 and 10,000. And Ingebrigtsen took it twice. And he went and got a drink. Yeah. I, I find that fascinating in a 12-minute race. I know that um, the Norwegians talk about, you know, dehydration is really a big deal. But in a 12-minute race or 13-minute race, I'm not convinced that that's going to make a difference. 
Yeah, it was interesting seeing him run off to get a drink. He said he was thirsty, so he wanted to have a drink. His mouth was dry. Yeah. Um, so it's that confident. Uh, look, he is great for the sport. I yeah, I love Ingebrigtsen, but I just want, I want him to be just a little bit careful. Um, that's all I'm, I'm – the coaching in me is coming out. Um, you know, we should have more entertainers. It's, it's what it's about. But first and foremost, you're a runner. Um, so, so, yeah, it was – They've been really interesting. Um, there's, you know, the 800, the 5,000, the 10K, the marathon was fantastic. You know, everything about the event was just brilliant. The field events, we, you know, the Australians did well. Mm. Yeah, Eleanor Patterson won the high jump. Um, I was about to say, I think you'd disown me if I started running down the straight with my with my arms in the air. And <laughs> but that's, that's how much the coach would come out. You'd, so. want it, you'd, you'd want to be a long way in front, George, if you did that. <laughs> I, this is a funny story, actually. I remember uh, when I was um, eight years old and I watched a guy who was a few years older and he was, you always look up to the runners that are older than you and he was one of the best runners in the country and he trained at our club and he was well in front in a race and he, and he put his arms out like, like, uh, like who cares when he was 20 meters out. I thought that was so cool. And then my next race, uh, I was running the school cross country, which uh, was it kind of easy competition when you're a runner back then and I passed you and I was 100 meters clear everyone and I did it and you were not happy <laughs> you absolutely let me know about it and said don't ever do that again and I learned my lesson pretty quickly so you said concentrate on the race and who cares about the field behind you yeah anyways that that's funny that memory just popped up <laughs> yeah that's uh that's I don't know if you remember that uh, but... I don't you, but... might, you should have gone to therapy for that one George, but uh <laughs> Uh, so the last couple of events we want to finish off are the women's 800 and 1500, which we really loved. And the, the 1500, Faith Keep Yagon um, is the queen of the 1500. She just absolutely dominated it again. But I was gobsmacked that three of them went out in 55 seconds, the first 400 of the 1500. And it was incredible to watch. It was, it was an elite field. Australia's Jess Hull was in there who got seventh at the Olympics, I think. One of the world's best runners. There was two clear groups after 300 meters because three of them went out absolutely flat chat sprint. And to the rest of the runner's credit, they went, we are not going to run that fast because that is ridiculous. And so there was three women 30 meters ahead of this second pack of the world's best runners. It was so bizarre to watch. And for reference, for context, they went through 455 seconds in the 800 at the world champs. They only went through in 56, 57. So Faith Kip Yagon, Tsitsuke and Laura Muir were the three that went with each other at the start. Um, And they were just miles ahead. And again, to their credit, um, they didn't hold that pace, but they stayed 30, 40, 50 meters clear of the rest of the runners and blew them apart. And they were the three medalists. Well, if you've tracked practice and trained that way, that is a good tactic. Um, and and if you can gap the field and put them in the red zone straight away, um, and you'll separate that because people were running sensibly, then you're going to absolutely stay that same distance apart if you've if your body can cope with that strategy. And you would have had to have trained that way. Um, and I think it's a great strategy to get rid of pretty much any contenders, anybody who's a roughie they don't have a chance anymore because they can't sustain that pace. The three front runners didn't sustain that pace either. They, they all slowed down incredibly. I think they were running 62s and 63s for the next, for the next laps. But, but certainly the tactic worked by, you know, doing something different, but you need to be prepared for that. Um, and we've talked about that championship style of racing and, and time trial style of racing, how they're two completely different, methods and you you need to be able to cope with both and it's like a a mount uh, uh 
a GC rider who can just ride up the hill at threshold compared to one who can go you know, over under attack recover attack recover um, two different styles of racing and I guess you you've got to train for both and be able to like you always say have more um, tools in your toolbox and use them when necessary yep uh, I totally agree and and you know that's what training and practicing is about so that you can race both forms of uh, of championship racing and and time trialing one last thing, we'll finish off there, but one last event I wanted to uh, give a notable mention to, and it's not something that I would I would often find myself watching, but I, I found myself in the last two years getting really obsessed, and it's one of my favorite events now, is the 400-meter hurdles. I just think it's such a fun event. It's The 400 is so hard because it's a 400-meter sprint, and the lactic in the last 100 is just unbearable, let alone jumping over these hurdles. And try jumping over hurdles in the last 100 meters of a 400 and it is just impossible your legs can barely get over the ground and um these professional athletes that do it it's such a fun event and it feels like a real original kind of greek event uh which is what the olympics were made for and um sydney mclaughlin oh my goodness she is just unbelievable she's she just gave one of the greatest athletic performances i've ever seen if you haven't seen it go and watch it again we might chuck a video up on it because um, what she did and the commentator put it perfectly he said we may never see an athletic performance like this ever again um, for context again she ran 50.6 and she broke her own world record to run 50.6 and win the gold no one had ever broken 51 seconds before um, it was 0.7 seconds faster than the previous world record just over a year ago no one had broken 52 seconds and then a few of them did it there's there's three of them that have done it now um, but she now holds six of the top eight fastest times ever and for the most ridiculous and absurd context, if she ran that same time, she would have come sixth in the women's 400 flat and she was running over hurdles. And that just shows how ridiculous it is. And it's it's such an elite performance to watch because it's someone just at their absolute prime. Her style is just perfect. She gets over the hurdles so smoothly. She barely breaks stride. It's, it's really uh, a pleasure to watch. And I just can't wait to see. She's got more in her, so I can't wait to see um how how much better she can go because yeah the commentator put it so well he just said she is um without a doubt one of the greatest athletes of all time so i really you don't see you don't see someone winning the race by that much um that often do you she's just so far ahead um a second here or there doesn't sound much but uh, when you put it in context of uh distance traveled it's you know it's nearly 10 meters um and and to be that far in front uh, at the end of 400 meters seems absurd but don't forget the shoes are different but the shoes are different for everybody in that race so they're not the other runners aren't running her times and they're all running with the best shoes um, so that's certainly giving her an advantage she's she's coping with that well but you know she's still doing the performance that is outstanding and I guess whichever way you look at it you know if you if you don't want to compare world records that's fine previous errors but you know put her in the put her in a 400 meter race and she has to run the hurdles she'll still come sixth in the world which is just ridiculous and again i'll reiterate that the top three in that race are the top three fastest women ever over 400 meter hurdles and like you said she's a second ahead of them so that is just uh yeah phenomenal i think she did run the four by four relay team yeah um, i think she was the fastest runner on that in yep. in that race but- fastest leg of the race yeah um thank you very much for listening we love talking about this stuff and we hope you love uh, hearing it we love sharing as much news as possible uh i think that athletics cycling triathlon because of social media they're all just getting more and more rap and we absolutely love it we can't wait to see what 
the pros can do more. And um, we really encourage you to keep watching and learning because that's where we get a lot of our best tips and our best methods. And you want to watch what the world's best are doing and model it. So um, that's our best advice to you. So thanks very much for listening. As, as always, we'll see you in the next episode.